You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com May you live in interesting times, goes the old Chinese curse. And whatever else you might say about the times that we're living through right now, ladies and gentlemen, it is interesting, to say the least. Well, welcome to the broadcast. Of course, this is Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting, and I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. So thank you once again for tuning in for tonight's program. And as you might may have guessed tonight, I want to step back for a moment from the day-to-day details to take a look at the bigger picture of what's really unfolding right now. Because as I say, uh, I think it really is the case that we are living through some monumentally world-historical important times, and it's sometimes difficult to really step back and see that bigger picture of what's happening because we are so focused on the details of the day-to-day. So, for example, tonight's focus, we're going to be uh, casting our eyes to Europe and the decline, the fall of the Eurozone, potentially, or the creation of some new beast of Eurozone togetherness. It really uh, remains to be seen which, but... At any rate, we're going to be talking about that subject, and once again, this is another case where if you're looking at the day-to-day details of what's happening, you may get lost in those details, and it's uh, very confusing at this uh, at this day-to-day level. There's a lot of things going on, and things are going up and down at a moment's notice, and it's difficult to see what the longer-term trends are if you're just looking at these headlines. So, for example, MarketWatch.com had a story uh, just the other day, Euro turns higher after Spain outlines budget, and it's talking about how the Euro is uh, up slightly because of Spain's budget plan, which is uh, a key move in in, in making Spain a, a part of uh, pushing European leaders closer to solving the region's crippling debt crisis, blah, blah, blah. So there's that take on things. Well, the Eurozone's trending upwards uh, for the last 24 hours because of this announcement of the Spanish budget. Everything's hunky-dory. But then you turn to another source. For example, the Voice of Russia is reporting on uh, an economist, Jacques Sapir, who is asking, will the Eurozone survive the winter? And uh, we've been hearing about the imminent collapse of the Eurozone for at least a year now, and uh, it's been talked about it's been rumored it's been speculated it's been it's been uh, definitely put through the mill and here we are still at this point still asking whether or not the eurozone is going to collapse imminently and that's because it continues to limp along helped in no small part by the quantitative easing that we've seen coming out from Draghi and the ECB and been approved by the uh, the German constitutional court with the European stability mechanism and the EFSF and Sarkozy, uh, not Sarkozy, Sarkozy's replacement, Hollande's talk about joint euro infrastructure bonds, etc. All sorts of uh, crazy ideas being put out there to try to basically kick the can down the road, or as it may be more apt to put it, roll the boulder up the hill, because every time you let go, that boulder's going to roll right back down. And it is a Sisyphean task, to say the least, to try to keep that defying gravity. So tonight on the program, we're going to be breaking down the Eurozone crisis, where it came from, where it's going, what its prospects are. And to do that, we are going to be highlighting a couple of uh, interviews that I've conducted in the past. One, a interview with William Engdahl uh, from back in 2011, so it was last year that we conducted an interview about the Eurozone and where it's going. But uh, even though it's a year old, I think it's nonetheless relevant for talking about where this crisis really originated from, what's at the root of it. 
and uh, what some of the likely prospects are. We're also going to be listening to a much more recent interview that I conducted just last week with uh, Geneva Business Insider, a.k.a. Uh, David L. Smith, and you can check him out at his blog. And we had the chance to talk just last week about that, so we're going to be listening to that. And if you're watching the video that's available, again, with every radio broadcast at CorbettReport.com, you'll be able to see the video of these conversations. But uh, but tonight we're going to be going over that, and we're also going to be taking a look at my uh, International Forecaster newsletter and reading a bit of that, because I had uh, something to say of note on this topic. So a lot of information to go over tonight. I hope you have your pen and paper ready, or at the very least that you're uh, ready to take some notes, because we're going to have a lot of fast and furious information tonight on the Eurozone crisis, where it's come from, and where it's going so hang on to your hats. We'll be right back after these messages. I'm sick of this damn noise. The paranoid android poised at the edge of the precipice. Sanity is gradually becoming my nemesis. Like Glenn Beck was my therapist. Yes, it sounds feminist. Governments and terrorists. Evidently similar. We've all got our... As the Eurozone continues to be threatened by the unfolding sovereign debt crisis, European leaders prepare for a key EU summit this week in Brussels. But with little hope for a solution to this crisis, many are now wondering how it began in the first place. This is the GRTV feature interview with your host, James Corbett, and our guest, F. William Engdahl. Perhaps we can get your... your uh, your take on the background to, to this collapse and uh, the geopolitics behind it. Well, I think the best way to look at what's going on in, in the Eurozone is to look at what was going on at the end of 2009 uh, with the dollar and with Wall Street banks. And I'm talking about the big six, roughly. Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, and so And at that point, the Chinese were openly saying that they're about ready to consider alternatives to their dollar investments, their treasury investments, which were by then well over uh, close to $2 trillion, as I recall. And that's serious money. Because the Chinese felt that the, uh, the U.S. fiscal policy was profligate, which it certainly was. And at that point, suddenly, Mirabilis Dictu, or Deus Ex Machina, whatever you want to call it, a crisis erupted under the new Papandreou, newly elected Papandreou government in Greece, where they announced that the actual size of the Greek public debt was vastly larger than uh, the previous conservatives had announced to the public. And that what came out is that in 2002, the conservative government in Greece was able to sneak into the Eurozone and meet the strict criteria on the surface, strict criteria of debt to GDP and other criteria, by hiding the real debts that they were incurring through exotic derivatives that were crafted for them by none other than Goldman Sachs. Interesting. Okay, we'll keep that name in mind because in a few minutes it's going to make more sense. Well, 2002, Goldman Sachs is on the inside of the game. Papademos, the so-called technocrat who's now uh, running the, the Greek government under this uh, national emergency coalition, Papademos was head of the Greek National Bank in 2002, facilitating uh, as a counterparty this uh, semi-legal, it was legal technically, but in fact it was 
illegal in the spirit of the Maastricht Treaty, uh, this hiding of the Greek debt. So Papademos was in on the fix from the beginning. He didn't say, Goldman Sachs, I think this is a dishonest deal that you're doing in spirit, and we shouldn't do this. We should be honest that we're not ready to enter the Eurozone. No, he didn't do that. His assistant at the, at the Central Bank of Greece at the time had come from Goldman Sachs. Another interesting fact. We just leave these as facts. Okay, then Greece comes in, the, uh, the weak link of the euro. Greece comes into the eurozone. And in December 2009, lo and behold, it comes out that Greece is not qualified to be in the eurozone because of this, this huge debt that it's carrying. So suddenly, the attention of financial uh, uh, speculators, hedge funds and others, but it's, of course, the Wall Street banks, goes on to one theme, the weakness of the euro construct. Now, this, is a, this has been a sleeping dog since the euro came into being in 1999, 2000, 2001, that there is no central fiscal policy, but there is a central bank. And so long as there wasn't a massive speculative attack on the euro and on the bonds of the euro uh, zone countries, uh, that wasn't a problem. And it was papered over. Everybody knew about it in Brussels. Everybody knew about it in Germany and Greece and all these other countries. But uh, they, they hoped that the test would somehow not come. Well, the test did come, and it's come big time. Then in early 2010, we had a situation where there was, there was a meeting in New York, and this was reported, I believe, in the New York Times, as I recall. There was a meeting of several of the largest head fund operators or managers in the world, among them our friend George Soros, of Quantum Fund, or Soros Management Group, it's called. And they discussed the quote-unquote Greek problem. And you can bet that those hedge funds discussing in common, they weren't just having a casual cup of coffee talking about the the latest uh, World Series game. They were talking about where to put their money on which side of the the speculative ledger. And so, of course, when, when the big boys go in on a speculative bet, then all sorts of small hedge funds and investment funds and others around the world began to take notice in banks, and they uh, pile in behind. And that's pretty much what happened. So there was a speculative uh, wave of, of attack against Greek sovereign debt, and that put fo- put the focus on the euro, took the pressure off the dollar, interestingly enough. And, um, so as that crisis developed into March of, of 2010, the day that there was a consensus reached in principle among the leaders, the political leaders of the Eurozone countries, Angela Merkel for Germany and uh, Sarkozy in France and so, on that same day, Standard & Poor's did something unprecedented in its history. They never did this uh, when the long-term capital management crisis was, was erupting. They never did it uh, during the dot-com bubble when, or the Exxon crisis when the warning signals were there flashing red well beforehand. They not only downgraded the sovereign debt of Greece, uh, they downgraded it three notches. Now, three notches happened to put the debt of Greece into so-called junk bond uh, category. And that meant that pension funds all around the world who were holding supposedly secure sovereign debt. It's something that, that doesn't default very often. You can look it up in the record books. Uh, suddenly, 
they were forced by their regulations of, of what pension funds can and cannot hold, they were forced to dump all the Greek debt on, on the same day onto the market. Well, that exploded, and of course, we can we can imagine that Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, uh, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase were piggybacking on this with all sorts of credit default swaps and just leveraging the speculative pressure against against the Greece uh, sovereign debt and also the eurozone. Well, a very, very important analysis, and I think something that is missing from from too much of the analysis out there. So, so allow me to perhaps uh, draw out and and spell out some of the things that you tactfully left uh, unsaid there. But I, I take it that your your implication is that the the entire eurozone uh, collapse has been at least uh, partially triggered by int- uh, Anglo American banking interests who have a vested interest in maintaining the the dollar hegemony well well past the uh, the death of the petrodollar paradigm and that this is some sort of speculative attack. I don't see any other way to understand it, and this is, it's not merely a speculative attack, but once once you set the snowball rolling down the mountain, the avalanche begins to ensue, and that's what we're seeing happening uh, after the initial snowball was thrown. And it was deliberately thrown by Wall Street, by Treasury Secretary Geithner, by Bernanke at the Fed. The comments they made during this whole sensitive time were not constructive, they were... No other interpretation is possible. They were designed to feed into the crisis atmosphere around the euro. There's one very big difference, uh, James, that I I have to add here. The difference between the underlying real economy of the eurozone countries and that of the United States, which has now 103% debt to GDP. It's U.S. is getting in the range of the Greek uh, debt to GDP ratios or the Italian. The U.S. doesn't have a real economy base to rebuild on. The multinational corporations, the Wall Street banks and so forth over the last 30 years have made a conscious political decision, geopolitical decision, to outsource American industry to Asia, Eastern Europe, Poland, in some cases to Russia, to China above all, and to simply uh, take that as a pure financial play and irrespective of what that's done to hollow out the industrial base of the American economy. If you go into an American, uh, a quality American graduate school for engineering or science today, uh, MIT, Caltech, uh, you name it, I venture to say that a large number of if not a majority of the graduate students going for PhDs in science and engineering in those universities in America today are going to have Chinese surnames, Asian surnames above all. Uh, It may be Indian, it doesn't matter. But they are not recruiting doctors and uh, engineers in the graduate level in American universities from inside the United States. It's largely coming from outside. So... The climate of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is fine, but what are you going to entrepreneur? What are you going to build with your brilliant brain? Uh, you can't eat IT, uh, you know, web network solutions. You can't eat. Uh, I recall having a, uh, a discussion when I was on a recent visit in China with a, uh, a professor from uh, a very prestigious American university who, who had East Coast University who had a project in China. And we were talking about the doldrums of the American economy. He was 
rather gentle in his critique. And I said, well, I, as I'm saying now, I, I, I see the biggest problem is the hollowing out of the industrial base and the, the real economy in the United States. It's gone into a service economy. He said, yes, that's a very serious problem, although there are bright spots. For example, there's a whole new industry growing up developing apps for iPhones. And I, I had to hold myself back from laughing at this distinguished professor because let's look at what it takes to feed and clothe a nation of 360 million people uh, at an adequate standard of living for the 21st century. You have to have more than apps to eat and put on the breakfast table. I'm sorry. Day in Manhattan, clear as could be, till the planes hit the buildings and changed history. They stood for an hour. All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Here we are on this Friday night edition of Corporate Report Radio. We're talking about the collapse of the euro, or the imminent collapse, or the probable collapse, or what is really going to happen. Where did this euro crisis originate from? And just before the break there, we were listening to and or watching, if you're watching the video of this uh, radio broadcast at CorbettReport.com, an interview that I did with uh, F. William Engdahl for GRTV last year on the Eurozone crisis. And that, of course, will be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com, as well as uh, Mr. Engdahl's website, which is always a mouthful. So if you do need the link, once again, it will be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com. But just for the record, his website is engdahl.oilgeopolitics.net. So uh, it would be a lot better if he could get an engdahl.com or something like that. But at any rate, that is the website, and he is always a, just a treasure trove of information on, on all sorts of things. So I hope you will check him out. But uh, we are talking about this cr- currency collapse crisis that's happening and all of the, the craziness that's happening in the political and the economic spheres and how they intersect so I want to to take a moment here just to read a little bit from my most recent International Forecaster editorial. Once again, I write the editorial intro for the International Forecaster, Bob Chapman's, the recently dearly departed Bob Chapman's newsletter that is still going out on a weekly basis at theinternationalforecaster.com. You can get that editorial and uh, other goodies, including discounts on my DVDs from my own weekly newsletter. And that's available at CorbettReport.com slash support. So I hope you'll go there to sign up if you haven't yet done so. And uh, But I just wanted to read a little bit from my, my last week's uh, editorial that came out on the 22nd of September. And it was a- about the subject of where this economic crisis is really originating from. And I think we can look at some of the details, and I, th- I think it's good to, and I think we should look at some of the details of... The, uh, the moves that are being made, how it's being done, who's involved, what transactions are be- happening, etc. But we also have to look at the bigger picture of how this is being facilitated. And part of that is just the general degradation of the society and the uh, so-called regulators who are supposedly there to keep everyone safe, etc., which is all one big con job. And it's been really exposed quite blatantly as being a con job during the recent economic collapse not only in Europe, but also what's happening in the States. So let's take a look at this. It's called Crime Pays. And uh, once again, this was in my newsletter from last week. And it starts by saying, The weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. 
So warned Lamont Cranston, the hero of the 1930s crime-fighting radio drama The Shadow, at the end of each episode, shortly after using his powers of invisibility to solve the week's mystery and bring the criminals to justice. The premise was simple and effective. Criminals may garner momentary reward from their activities, but in the end, the long arm of the law will find them and bring them to justice. Crime is a chump's game. After all, the shadow knows. <laughs> if only life were like an old-time radio drama. Unfortunately, in this age of liars' loans and mortgage gate, robo-signing and QE infinity, too big to fail and too big to jail, any pretense that the globalist financial system is based on the rule of law has long since been jettisoned. In the current environment, crime not only pays, it pays handsomely. And just as Adolf Hitler outlined the old principle of propaganda that the bigger the lie, the more likely people are to believe it, the banksters of our age seem to have discovered a corresponding principle in the financial realm. The bigger the fraud, the more likely they are to get away with it. Take the SEC Goldman Sachs debacle from earlier this year. Back in February, Goldman received a Wells Notice. For those not in the know, a Wells Notice is a type of courtesy card from the SEC letting an institution know they may or may not be facing enforcement action for their alleged crimes. The charge in this case? Goldman's role in the mortgage-backed security scam in the subprime mortgage crisis that led to the housing collapse of 2007 and the near-total destruction of the global economic system. You know, that little problem? Goldman's role in the debacle was not a matter of conjecture, A Senate inquiry into the MBS scam laid it bare. As Senate, Parla- Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations Carl Levin put it in a statement from the inquiry, Investment banks such as Goldman Sachs were not simply market makers. They were self-interested promoters of risky and complicated financial schemes that helped trigger the crisis. They bundled toxic mortgages into complex financial instruments, got the credit rating agencies to label them as AAA securities, and sold them to investors, magnifying and spreading risk throughout the financial system and all too often betting against the instruments they sold and profiting at the expense of their clients. Those are some pretty heavy accusations. So what proof did the Senate have to back up those claims? Goldman's own words. Sounds like we will make some serious money. One senior Goldman manager emailed his colleagues at the start of the crisis. Yes, we're well positioned, his colleague responded, referring to Goldman's strategy to sell the AAA certified toxic garbage subprime MBS to customers and cover their posteriors by betting against those very securities in the derivatives market. Open and shut case, right? Surely this type of behavior has to be made an example of. Surely the agency in charge of regulating the institutions at the core of the global financial system would not let this type of conduct go unpunished. Surely not. Last month, the SEC announced there would be no criminal charges at all against Goldman. The vampire squid was free to go about its business, sucking the blood from the real economy, wrapping its tentacles around the levers of finance, and releasing its inky smoke trail to deflect any would-be prosecutors. All right, the, uh, the newsletter goes on from there. I will let you read it for yourself. Once again, you can get your copy at CorbettReport.com slash support. And if you uh, sign up in the next few hours, you will get the, this particular uh, edition before the next edition is released tomorrow. That's Saturday, September 29th, 2012. So once again, folks, it is very much a uh, problem that is systemic and it is not just coincidental. So let's take a short break. We'll be back after this and we'll be talking to David L. Smith, Geneva Business Insider, about the Euro collapse. 
Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It is the 21st of September 2012, and today I'm joined on the line once again by David L. Smith, a.k.a. the Geneva Business Insider at GenevaBusinessInsider.blogspot.com. David Smith, it's great to have you back on the program. Thanks for your time today. Great to be here again. Thank you very much. Well, we've talked a couple of times now in the past, once on GRTV and once on my radio program, talking about various issues to do with the European economy. And since the last time we've talked, there's been some more major moves, including the release of Mario Draghi's so-called bazooka onto the markets with a uh, large round of basically unlimited um, quantitative easing happening in Europe. And since then, we've also seen the Federal Reserve announce QE3. Uh, the Bank of Japan has just announced a new stimulus in their their asset road, uh, buyout program. So lots and lots of easing going on all around the world. I'm not sure where you'd like to pick up from this, but what is your take on what we're seeing right now in the markets? Well, I think what we're seeing is uh, the, the inevitable. I mean, the, the situation in the U.S. is dire. The same thing is true in, in Europe. Uh, basically, uh, let, let's, let's take Europe first. Uh, I'm just back from Spain Two days ago, well, the situation there is absolutely desperate. Um, they have run out of cash. They have enough cash to survive for about a week. So um, they've got bond issues coming up in the month of October, which is going to eat up everything that, that they have. So there has to be something pumped into the system, or, or there is default and collapse. Now, what Baggy is doing is certainly going, I would have thought, to or beyond the limits of, of his authority, but no one is actually... Apart from screaming rape, uh, no one has actually done anything to stop him. Um, you know, they, if you look inside the ECB, there is uh, one one member who has actually stood up against what they are doing. But when you have got, let's say, a dozen people, all of whom are bankrupt and all of whom who need a bailout, and one has got the money, then this is socialism at its best. They gang up on the guy with the resources, and they say, well, of course, you're the bad guy because you're not giving us all your money. So this is what the ECB has come to. You know, it, it's it's a, it's just a collection of uh, bankrupt muppets sitting around a table, uh, with uh, Mr. Draghi being the their spokesman. Uh, that's unfortunately the case. For those people who don't quite understand what happened, tell them about the, uh, the Draghi and his most recent move. Um, not really prepared for that question. <laughs> Okay, well, let's let's talk about uh, what what was happening on the other side of the pond. Of course, with yeah. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke also uh, announcing a huge new round of quantitative easing, which was already priced in. Everyone was already expecting it—a forty billion dollar a month mortgage-backed security buyout program that is really only going to serve to prop up more of these derivatives uh, that the banks are inflating out to to uh, just untold trillions. It's ridiculous on its face, and it's uh, supposedly going to be uh, going on until such time as employment picks up. So uh, I'm not sure what the mechanism there is between the mortgage-backed securities and uh, the employment rate, but whatever the excuse they're using, it's just uh, seeming to add more fuel to the fire, as it were. What is the, the overall effect of all of this easing going to be? Well, I think if you take the various components of what's been proposed, first of all, you've got Bernanke saying that uh, there will be zero interest rates for the next three years. So I'm sure that for anyone who's a saver or anyone who's living off a pension plan or hoping in the future to live off a pension plan, he's got programmed in his mind that there will never be any income on, on the cash that he is lying in that pension scheme. That's point number one. Uh, as far as the easing is concerned, he's got Operation uh, 
Twist, which is still ongoing. Operation Twist um, is uh, basically um, running out of steam because there are no longer enough bonds that he can actually buy to to make his debate and switch the situation. Uh, so now they're talking about buying mortgage-backed securities. So what you're talking about is uh, potentially uh, an open-ended purchase rate of about 100, slightly over 100 billion per month, going out ad, ad infinitum at the same time as no interest is being paid. And all of this money is going to be stuffing the bank's uh, pockets. They're dumping all of their mortgage-backed securities, which are, as we well know, worth uh, perhaps a few cents on the dollar uh, in exchange for treasuries, which are pro- future promises from the uh, taxpayers of the, the U.S. So all, all this is, it is, has nothing to do with employment because there's been clear proof that for, for a number of years now, all of the trillions that have been pushed into the system do absolutely nothing whatsoever for employment in the U.S. If you take numbers which are very simple and say, all right, you're running a deficit of, um, let's say, one and a half trillion a year, uh, and then you convert that deficit into actual economic growth, you're seeing a deficit of 10% of the GDP, and you're seeing economic growth of maybe half a percent of 1% of GDP. So the whole thing, all the money is not going where they say it is meant to go. It's got nothing at all to do with with uh, helping employment, although that will be the story that will be told uh, for the next 10 years as the outsourcing of jobs from the U.S. to other places continue. It is all about making sure that the banks are given enough money uh, and, and enough uh, rope to not necessarily hang themselves, but uh, basically to save themselves on the back of the taxpayer. It is a very, very, very tragic situation. And in, in essentially, it is no different from what's happening in Europe. Now, if I jump another continent and I look at a uh, continent to another country, and I look at Japan, which you'll know a hundred times better than me, they have got, now got 20 years of track record that, that quantitative easing is a complete failure. And, and even the governor of the central bank at the time, 20 years ago, who, who was talking about uh, <coughs> this at a subsequent uh, banker's pre- uh, presentation, said that he, he, it, quantitative easing per se does not work. It is not the solution, and it's like pushing on the, the end of a piece of spaghetti to to move a bus. So that is my take on the situation. Well, as you point out, there's so much of this madness behind this quantitative easing, and it's all happening at the same time across different continents. Um, and there, there has been some pushback against this, but uh, not enough to actually cause it uh, cause any problems for the agenda. So, for example, you point out the Bundesbank and its head, um, Jens Widerman, were, were fighting back against Draghi's uh, decision to, to drop his so-called bazooka. And uh, you also had the German Constitutional Court ruling on the European Stability Mechanism, and they could have had the chance to rule that it was unconstitutional and uh, thus put the brakes on that $600 billion, 500 billion euro fund, but uh, that did not happen, so it looks like that the uh, the bailouts are going to proceed apace with Italy and Spain. Um, so it, it really looks like there are no brakes on this bus. Are, is there anything out there right now that could potentially stop this round of easing madness? Well, I, I think the the easing madness that they have, what what's going to put the brakes on it? Uh, if you take the German Constitutional Court, they're in an immensely difficult situation to actually push all of Europe off the edge of a cliff. So in many ways, by saying 
yes, but uh, they have kind of put the put the ball back in the court of the politicians. But for me, e- even if the EFSF, uh, ESM, or whatever it is, uh, is actually finally ratified and comes into being, the amounts of money are so trivial compared to what the genuine needs are that that there is there is no hope of this solving the crisis in any way at all. If you take all of the money that's available in this future fund, it will be probably enough to save Greece. But as I say, having had made a trip down to Spain, you you realise that the, these um, these banks are all completely bankrupt. Fifteen percent of all their deposits uh, of of all their lending uh, on real estate now is is beginning to default. These these are colossal numbers. These are hundreds of billions. Then you have uh, land which is. Uh, Sitting in developers' uh, books, which is also uh, worth maybe a third of what, what it's in the books for, all of the uh, practically all of the individual regions in Spain are in a situation where they need to bail out, and of course the central government does as well because they've no longer any cash. So, making a conservative es- estimate as to uh, what the needs are in Spain, and let's say Italy at the same time, which doesn't have the real estate problem, but it has the same funding problem, we we are talking about uh, amounts in the trillions and not the hundreds of billions. So once again, we're, we're just um, nibbling around the edges of, of a disaster. And I think what's happening with the, you know, we, we're seeing coordinated uh, currency destruction. Uh, and, and the reality of that destruction. It's like having half a dozen ships in a harbour. If you pull the plugs out all at the same time and they all sink evenly, nobody on the bridge of any one particular ship is going to say, oh, hold on a minute, um, that ship next to me is sinking until they're all actually swimming in the water. So, I mean, they, they, the, the situation, it, it is pathetic. And uh, I, I think that we're going to start to see a, 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 the population finally begin to understand that and, and see some of the we'll certainly see it in inflation with commodity prices and let's hope we see it in in increased value of precious metals which have already bumped up uh, in, in the last few days as a recognition that this is, this is the road to disaster well that's exactly my take on it I think that's why this is happening in coordinated fashion right now it's so that no one currency uh, inflates too much what relative to the others so that no one notices the sinking ship as you put it uh, it does raise the question of if there are going to be any winners from this because uh, we all we always see that there's there's people who are aware of what the markets are doing and are able to situate themselves beforehand so for example in the wake of the recent announcements from Draghi and Bernanke and uh, even the Bank of Japan we've seen spikes in the markets that have taken place and uh, lowering of the, uh, the the bond yields in, in Spain and Italy and uh, some of the other countries that were on the precipice. Uh, doesn't this prove that we're actually improving matters? Well, I think the matters are, are distinctly improving. If you, if you uh, look at the, the Forbes list of the 400 richest Americans, therefore personal fortunes have gone up by about 15% in the last 12 months. So what is happening is, is that all of the money which uh, should be theoretically helping the economy, in fact, just migrates uh, into, uh, in, into uh, the stock market, which goes up for no apparent reason, where you're seeing uh, ever-increasing 
price-earnings ratios simply because the money is nowhere else to go. But as long as there's a bubble there, then that's fine. The Treasury situation is a bubble also. So, um, you know, the, 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 the situation is there are people who are getting more out of this, but uh, it's basically the wrong people. And if you look at any hope whatsoever of, of a genuine recovery, that recovery has to come by actually creating goods and services which, uh, with a value added and uh, getting the, the workforce back to work. So if you cannot do those two things, um, you're destined to you're destined to failure. And at the moment, I mean, the the, the thing that I think is hiding failure uh, in the most visible ways are, are things that in, instead of having queues outside a soup kitchen, uh, now everybody receives a check check through um, through the mail, so you don't actually see that. And the same thing with the social security payment. You know, you don't have people queuing up outside uh, unemployment offices either. So you go to southern Spain where there's a 50% unemployment. Life looks actually perfectly normal until such time as the money runs out, uh, the money printing runs out. And then the social unrest that uh, we've been seeing in Greece for a long time is actually going to explode onto the streets in just about every um, developed country in the world. So we... Uh, we are looking at a desperate situation which is, is masked uh, either by currency manipulation, stock market manipulation, or uh, freebies from a government which is already completely bankrupt. That's unfortunately exactly right, and the semblance of normality that's taking place is, is in many ways a detriment because there are so few people who are aware of the, the real nature of the cliff that we're, we're, we're edging up towards the, uh, the edge of here. But uh, for those of us who are aware of it, uh, what, what types of things can people do to hedge against what's coming, or is there, is there anything that they can do with their long-term savings to protect it against this, uh, this economic precipice? Hmm. Well, I'll give you an interesting answer to that. I, I was yesterday at a presentation by one of the major American banks in Geneva with about 50 uh, very high net worth of their clients. Needless to say, I'm not included among the list, <laughs> but uh, as a spectator. Uh, and uh, they're, they're talking as uh, business as normal, and they're observing all these things happening and say, well, be in the stock markets, you know, buy, buy um, shares in large multinational companies which have got very low debt and and they are basically saying to their, their clients, okay, well, these are the circumstances that exist today. Why don't you try and live off it as, as best you can? Which is uh, probably not wrong. I mean, that is what that is what the, the market is there for, is to be an opportunity for people to take. However, if the market is rigged in their favor and then they take the benefit of it on the back of the other people, then I, I have a big issue with that morally. Uh, although, um, obviously, you know, when you're accepting a free lunch from somebody, you have to listen with interest to, the, to their point of view. Um, in terms of what you can do, the only thing you have to do, I think, is realize that, that the money that you have is basically uh, just uh, paper tokens. It's like in Europe, there's a, an organization called Club Med, and when you go into this holiday camp, you exchange real money for paper tokens which you can spend within that particular camp. And what we're looking at now is that the dollar is becoming exactly that, the euro is becoming exactly that. It's a token you can use in a particular context, 
but as a store of value, it's worth about as much as your tokens are when you when you leave the holiday camp. So you have to get out and get into um, hard assets of, of what, whatever nature, whatever is the most practical. The obvious ones for people with, uh, you know, deeper pockets or buying, you know, kilo bars of gold or 20 kilo bars of gold. But or for, tungsten, as the case may be. I don't know if you've heard some of these stories, but some of these uh, bars are being uh, drilled into and found to be tungsten all the way through. So. Exactly. I, I'm very closely involved in and, and help people to, uh, you know, invest in physical gold stored outside of the banking system, which I think I think is uh, as near to an ultimate security as you can get. But I would certainly, if in, in that kind of case, if people go down that route, and if you happen to be an American citizen, I would make very sure that that gold is stored outside of America and outside of the, the banking system, because... If not, the, the long reach of Uncle Sam may catch you out. So I think that's a, that's a very important point. Silver, for uh, the same reason, is it should not be going down in value. It could even go up very, very substantially. If the market weren't so rigged, it would already be very substantially higher. And then after that, on more practical things, you know, you're probably better off with bricks and mortar um in in today's you know even if the market today has co- collapsed very largely at least it's somewhere near a bottom and when inflation really hits uh, there there's got to be some kind of an upside now it may not it, it may not perform the way the gold and silver should perform but that might work um they, and um you know if if you've got a bit of extra money uh, spend it on something that you like i mean if you've always said well i want to have my ferrari uh, Ferraris are cheaper than they were a few years ago, and if you buy it now, you may enjoy it. And uh, if inflation comes along, you may even sell it for more than you paid for it, even if at the end of the day all you can buy with the money is a cup of coffee. All right, friends, welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. Once again, this is the Friday night highlight edition of the broadcast where we've been going over some of my previous work on the subject of the Eurozone collapse and the economic crisis generally, because I think the Eurozone and the problems that are happening therein is just a microcosm of the macrocosm of the global financial collapse. So once again, it is important to know some of these details and the players and how they did it, because if we don't know how the system has been engineered to be what it is, we will be ramrodded into whatever safety blanket they want to put us into. And that is exactly the point. Failing forward is the order of the day for the New World Order. And the Eurozone was always meant to collapse. This is absolutely part of the game plan. It's something that I personally have been writing about for the better part of four years now at CorbettReport.com, talking about it on my podcast for five years. Other people have been talking about it for much, much longer, that part of the plan is to crash the current system in order to get 
people on board with whatever solution they come along with. And in the Eurozone, that's looking like ever greater and greater cooperation amongst the nations of the Eurozone in the form of the European Central Bank, which is always ready to assume more and more and more and more powers to solve the problem that it itself created. And this is a simple concept, but it's one we hammer on again and again and again because it happens over and over and over. And it will continue to happen until people wake up to this scam and say no to the would-be power elite who always engineer these crises for their own benefit. All right, friends. Well, again, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to this economic collapse, and I hope you will go and take a look at the full interviews with both David L. Smith and William Engdahl, which will be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode. There's a lot more to be said on this Eurozone collapse, so we will be continuing to cover it, and we will have people like David L. Smith and William Engdahl back on the program in the future to continue going over this. But uh, suffice it to say, there is a lot of information that's breaking, and it is of world historical importance And I certainly hope that you are uh, doing your best to keep up with it as I am on my end. So as always, I'm always interested in whatever research and things that you're coming across on your end. Please send them in through the contact form at CorbettReport.com. I'm happy to take a look at it. But with the proviso that unfortunately I am absolutely swamped with emails and work and I simply humanly, physically can't respond to it all. So if you don't get a response from me, please don't take it personally. I do try to read everything that comes in if and when I can. And uh, again, I appreciate links to documentaries, etc. But again, I can't promise that I'll get around to it anytime soon as my, uh, well, my to-do list is getting longer and longer and longer, as I'm sure many of you can relate to out there. So once again, we will be back on the program next week to continue going through and breaking down the paradigm that is unfortunately the system that we're all living under right now. And I have some pretty exciting guests lining up right now, some first-time guests, etc. So I'm looking forward to that, and, uh, and I hope you are too. On that note, once again, I would like to remind people that this media is brought to you by you. So if you want to sign up for the subscriber newsletter again in the next few hours, you will get last week's edition of the newsletter as well as the coming one that will be out tomorrow morning. And uh, in the last week's edition includes a 33% off discount on the Last Word DVD. And from this point on, subscribers will get the regular 25% discount. So if you uh, want to get in the next few hours, you can still get your hands on that 33% off. Or otherwise, you can just purchase the DVD through the website full price, and it will come to you in the, the mail, hopefully within a couple weeks. And on that note, I'm completely out of time, so it's been great talking to you all once again. Thank you for listening tonight, and take care. Hey!